to Change Voices, the podcast where we explore the challenges, successes, and lessons of leadership through the experience of women leaders across Africa and beyond. I'm your host, Paula Frey. In this session, we're going to explore the intersection of health and digital technologies. Our guest today, Jujette Diakabana, is a global health practitioner. She is Deputy Director of the African Alliance of Digital Health Networks, an organization designed to ensure African countries have the support and resources needed to develop strong digital health systems. Co-chair of the World Health Organization's Digital Health Technology Advisory Group, Jujette has also deployed technology-based solutions in over 20 countries throughout Africa. So welcome, Jujette. Thank you, Paula. Thank you for having me. It's really good to be here. So Jujette, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into, um, into technology? So technology for me, it was... Um, um, it goes back to my childhood, actually. I, I moved from Congo to the United States in the 90s. I was right before I turned 10. Um, before that, I, had, I didn't even know tech- computers existed. I knew of uh, the closest thing I came to technologies was a cell phone, the very early um, days. Cell phones, of course, interaction with television, but not understanding all that was behind it. And so when we arrived to the US, my father had a computer, and it was the most fascinating thing for me. Um, I launched into it. Shortly after we arrived, the computer broke. And coming from Congo, we were in the habit of fixing things that broke. So I, I hadn't yet developed this idea of just throwing things away. So my brothers and I took the computer apart. We were never able to fix it, but we at least knew what it looked like um, on the inside. And that's really where my fascination with computers um, started. And then, of course, um, then on we ended up getting internet. Um, you know, going into emails and, and just that's where it all began. Um, how it ties into how I ended up doing it professionally, even without studying it, it's that um, that early on, um, just seeing this intricate piece of machinery when you're looking at a computer and then um, seeing everything that it, the output of, you know, of what these machines would do somehow gave me a sense of you know, there's a lot that we can do with this if we could take this to Africa. Uh, I was thinking of Congo at the time, but I later learned that you know, many other countries um, felt exactly the same. So I, um, I didn't study technology, even though I kept interacting with it um, throughout my studies uh, in my 20s. But I always saw it as something that we needed to use to improve our lives, whether it's in education um, and then um, later on in, in health. So that's really, that, that my, my relationship with technology runs that deep. And, mm-hmm. um, and it's no accident that I, I sometimes forget that that's where the love really came from. Um, and then on the, on the health side, I was always, we were sick a lot as children in Congo. Um, and it took me a while to really match, you know, make the connection between using technology and, and, and improving health. Um, and I always thought, okay, maybe I could become a doctor and help. Uh, and then I realized at some point, well, it wasn't because of different reasons in life, it, it became, um, it was no longer an option for me to become a doctor. But I started to hear about people using technology to, in, in the health space, uh, I, the early days were telemedicine. So I, I didn't go into the, the field right away, but I really stayed tuned in into, into that space. 
So that's kind of, that's, you know, where it all started for me from taking, well, learning that the com computers existed, <laughs> being able to take one apart, and then eventually tying it into um, something that could be used to solve problems I faced um, as a child and that many other children still faced. So you really have kind of used technology-based solutions um, around health across the continent, but I want to focus on one particular um, um, project or program that you worked on. So um, it's August 2020. It's the middle of the pandemic. Um, and people are generally still in lockdown across the globe. Um, and the World Health Organization declares Africa polio-free. So Take me to that moment when you hear that, what's going through your mind? Where are you? Oh, Paula, that day, even as you're speaking about it, there's still, you know, tingles <laughs> that come <laughs> to mind. The excitement hasn't died up yet. That day I was in, in the pandemic found us in Switzerland. I had just become a mom at that time and was still really figuring out where to, what to do, um, having had this major life change in terms of career. And for a moment, I even considered, well, I've done what I can in health. Um, now I should move on. I was used to, you know, we work on a project and then you move on, the, but the problem you're trying to solve still continues and lives on the, beyond you or beyond you. So that day, it was the first time that something I had worked on actually led to the intended resolution, which was this declaration of end of polio. Uh, end of polio. Um, that, that project was, polio actually is what attracted me really to actually pursue a career in, in global health. Um, and my relationship with it dates beyond 2020. It, was, it goes back to 2008 when I first returned to Congo um, from the US. And I happened to be back during a time where they were conducting massive uh, polio campaigns. And from, an, from my point of view, from an observer's point of view, it just looked really chaotic, right? There were people uh, wearing WHO vests everywhere with um, uh, coolers all over the, the, the city, whether it's like bus stops, markets, they were, you know, um, asking, trying to vaccinate people because we went to um, oral vaccination at the time, as you're coming off of public transportation, they were at schools, they were coming to your homes. Um, and I didn't understand how that operation could be organized. Fast forward a few years later in 2016, um, I end up being called to put together what they were calling end of polio task force with very little instructions on how to do this. But eventually I ended up in Chad and we set up this task force uh, where we had different experts from um, multilateral organizations. So WHO, UNICEF, CDC, uh, US CDC and other NGOs to, who came together to look at how do we solve, um, how do we solve this polio problem? We've been trying to end it in Africa for years and we're still not getting there. One of the things that, so it, it was in that process that I really started to learn the story behind it and that we had done, um, there's been a lot of work in that, in, in, done in Nigeria where there was, technology was really, uh, played a key role. Um, one of the major things that was new to me was the use of uh, mapping. So GIS data, you know, I, I, my relationship with GIS was for it to tell me where to go. Not, I never thought about it as, as actually using it to, um, to help us 
solve a problem mm. like uh, like cure a disease. So we started using GIS to one identify where people were, where did who do who have we vaccinated and who has been left out of campaign to ensure that this disease continues to live on. So I um had the the our, we had one person who was working on GIS and I would sit with him. Um, you know, for about a week, and he kind of went through. This is, you know, this is how we look at maps. This is how we identify who's who's where and where the vaccines have been going in the past. And it's amazing when you look at the map and you see who has been left out. So that was one thing. The other thing was just looking at the information of who's there, how old are they, have they been vaccinated. So um, there's a process called micro planning for vaccination campaign. So we worked on linking the two, the maps with the information we had to then create plans that are more targeted, more specific. Um, it took about six months to get it right, and they launched eventually. Uh, we, so that we used those, that information to help us plan our vaccination campaign better. D doing that with, I mean, they were in, in areas where politically um, it wasn't so safe. <laughs> they were even, we had to go through um, at, at times from capital cities to where we needed to vaccinate people, you go through, you know, rebel, um, rebel occupied zones, etc. So it was, it was, uh, and, and people who worked on these were young people from um, the, the, the project ended up taking place in Nigeria, Niger, Cameroon, um, and Chad, and then eventually Liberia, uh, Sierra Leone, DR Congo, and uh, Central Republic, uh, um, African Central Republic. And so we, um, we, with the help of, of, you know, technology, with the planning, we were able to figure out how to do this. And it, it was, again, supposed to be a six month long thing. It continued on for years. And I kept in touch with my colleagues who, after I, I set up the task force, it, after it was running, I moved on to another project. Um, they kept going. So I would hear about them. Oh, we're getting more data. We're understanding more, you know, what people, not just where people are, who's been vaccinated, who's been left out, what they're also telling us about um, what, what, might, what types of behaviors might keep um, this uh, uh, virus circulating. And at some point, most of the colleagues who I collaborated with in those early stages moved on. The project became quite big and we lost track of it. So fast forward 2020, um, I see this message and what that meant was all that we did actually worked. Um, and so for me, I hang on to that as, as a proof of a few things. One is that, you know, using technology in the right way can actually lead to the results that you desire. But more importantly, um, the project could not have been possible, the work could not have been done had we not included the people from those countries, had we not brought in this group of young people who had worked on this in northern Nigeria and brought them to help us build out a plan of action and even help manage some of the work in, in these other countries. And um, as an African, it was also fascinating for me to see how I thought it was just for, easier for me to sort of weave my way into these different you know, countries and cultures, but to see that it was something that a lot of us actually have in common. I mean, one story I have is that at some point I needed to be in two places at once, which of course is impossible. Um, we had an issue with the project in Chad and then in the DRC as well. And the only person who could go who uh, was available, wasn't needed in, in 
one of the countries we were working was a, a young man from Nigeria who spoke not a word of French. And he agreed <laughs> to go to, um, to the GRC. And I was quite, I think it's somewhere out of desperation, but he also of course won my confidence. Um, he, went, he went to Congo. We couldn't communicate much, but the, 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 the work that we needed to get done was done. And um, at some point I connect with the Minister of Health official in, in the GRC and he's telling me, oh yes, you know, this, this person that you sent, this is what he's doing, this is how he's doing. I thought, how is he doing it? He doesn't speak French. He, while he was there, he picked up enough of the language <laughs> to be able to communicate <laughs> and manage, you know, manage this amazing project. So those are all, um, it's, it's, it's people like that. It's um, events like that where people are just ready to go into unknown areas and really committed to this work uh, and trusting that with what technology is telling us, the data that we have, and you know the, the desire of the people we find to, to help um, solve this problem, that if we come and, and our own desire to contribute, if we combine those ingredients, we can get the work done. And so that's something that um, I, you know, I really value. And this, this is what this project still remains um, close to my heart. And I, you know, I thought about where everyone was, what they were doing. And I, as I called everyone, it wasn't, I shouldn't have been surprised, but we were all celebrating because, you know, we knew what it took to get mm -hmm. to this declaration. So this is why when I even hear it mentioned, it's just my, you know, my, my heart just lights up um, because mm -hmm. I know what it took. And it's just wonderful to, that all of that effort actually led to. Mm -hmm. And an, and an incredible achievement, really. You know, Eugene, when, when I listen to you mean, and, and, and your stories of growing up and, and, and really kind of opening up that computer, it seems to me like you were always fearless about technology, um, learning, learning new technology, being comfortable with technology, being comfortable knowing what you don't know about technology, I suppose, in some ways. But I mean, how do you connect the technology to the project? Because not every project is the same. So, so do you have to keep yourself you know, up to date with the latest technologies or does the project come first and then the technology solution? Yes, that's, that's a good question. Um, and, and it's true, I'm, I'm quite fearless about the technology and I don't always know. In fact, every project I've done, I've had to learn new technology to do the project. So what always comes first for me is the project itself. Um, it's going and understanding what the, the problem actually is. And I do that more. So I do read about what you know, experts say the problem is, but I do that, but I always triangulate that information with the people who are living in, so even if the, tel the technology already, has already been identified, I've had um, an, an, an example. There's a, there's a project that on trypanosomiasis that I worked on in the DRC was um, we created a, a, an application to help us with community-based surveillance. So we would invite a bunch of people over and we'll record their information and then run and test them for um, the virus and, and, and see if it, you know, the test positive or not. So that application, when I joined the project, it was already developed, there was something developed, but it, people didn't like it at all. The, the country didn't like it, the ministry didn't like it, the public didn't like it at all. So we kept trying to work with it. And then at some point it just became clear that this is not, there's no way this project is going to advance with this. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's sometimes a fear of wasting time. Um, that's something that, 
I think in time I've, 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 I've developed also some courage <laughs> around. Um, so what we ended up doing was um, we just stopped working on the technology itself. Um, my colleagues allowed me time to go to the DRC, talk with the people who are using the technology, and we had to redo the whole thing oh. over again. Mm-hmm. And we were doing it in the process. We were, as we built part of the, 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 the application, will test it, um, that our, our colleagues, so the people at the Ministry of Health will test it. They'll come back to us and tell us, this is what works, what doesn't work, this is why. So they became maybe involved uh, in the design process, something that should have happened beforehand. And then with every project, yes, I, I, it, it, it is that fearlessness, or maybe that curiosity as well, that allows me to learn and understand. So this is why my knowledge, when I came into this field, it was really uh, it was more around the data and hardware, and I had to learn software piece of, of the of mm. software aspects of technology. But with time, with every project, it, it has increased. And the more I understand what people need, the more I understand what people want, um, the more I understand what we can do, and the more I'm driven to try to understand what technology can do and mm. how and then how we can best use it in the process. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we've discovered is even as we introduce, for example, new ways of accessing um, training or or journalism work, for example, that we also have to spend time with journalists who might use their cell phones all the time, but we have to spend time actually teaching how to use the technology, how to use the applications. And I, I think a lot of the things that are intuitive for some people, like you know, what's your username and password? Um, you know, aren't necessarily that intuitive for everyone else. How much of your time is even spent just teaching people how to use the applications? Oh, generally a lot of time. And what I, I with the wisdom I, I've gained, <laughs> what I advise anyone who comes to me to say, how do you do this? I say, dedicate equal amount of time with teaching people how to use what you're creating as you are with creating um, the thing mm-hmm. itself. If you can collaborate directly, so for polio, um, the polio application, we could we collaborate directly with the, the users. And so as we were creating it, they were giving us feedback. Um, as well as we, it was already created basic, but as we, were, as we were improving it, we were getting feedback at the same time. And so that does two things. It's that it gets the buying of the people who are gonna use it because they feel like they were part of creating it. But also it, it prevents you as the creator of the technology from making unnecessary um, errors. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I, I, you know, I, I um, you know, we talk a lot about capacity building um, in development in general, but especially in digital health. And it sometimes comes out as we're going to finish something and we're going to tell people how to use it. My approach is get people going on this as 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 you as you are before you finish as you as you're building the, the solution and if it is already finished really dedicate it's not a matter of getting people in the same room and training them on how to use it as you say paula so much is not intuitive uh, and we forget that the way a solution is developed it's, it's highly influenced by the people who designed it the people who are building it it's it's critical um, it, it's a critical part of, of digital transformation or of advancing of really using technology um, to spend the time to really work with people, teach people, have people just even those who might be comfortable with technology, have them actually practice. Right. That's the thing. There's no pride. Um, there's no being shy about it. 
um, practice how to use the, the device um, and, and really become comfortable uh, so that it becomes second nature to you. Talk a little bit about the development of artificial intelligence um, and how it works alongside health in Africa. Yeah, so the artificial intelligence is another another interesting one, though it holds a lot of promise, um, especially for our continent. We, we're still a long way to go. Um, while so I, I talked about us having powerful um, powerful hardware, computers, uh, phone servers, where where artificial intelligence technologies can work. Um, we what one of the key ingredients for it to actually get something valuable out of, out of any artificial intelligence platform is data. And for um, much of Africa, um, Sub-Saharan Africa is what I know best, we're still in the process. In South Africa, you're, you're slightly ahead of, uh, of the rest of the continent. There are countries like Rwanda, Kenya, who are still um, doing quite, are a bit ahead in the data aspect. We're still in the process of digitizing the data. And so much of what we're calling digital health now are these projects that do you know, massive data collections. And the, so that if, if, if we were able to already use that data to train artificial intelligence to identify you know, patterns and trends you know, up for us, um, by us, I mean uh, those of us in, in Africa, from Africa, it would be, we could already get excited about the, the prospects. But the thing is, we still have a lot of work to do in the data aspect. Much of what's been collected in digital health, they don't reside in our countries. They're not available for us. So our health information currently get analyzed in isolation without um, taking into account the other determinants of, of, of our health. So the economic, the social, even the political as well. So that's where we are. And I think that's, um, so even though the, the technology itself is working, it's ready, it's not yet trained enough to benefit us in the way that it could. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, for the past, I would say decade, there's been a lot of talk about data quality, data, but we still haven't solved that data quality um, issue mm -hmm. because of, uh, partly because of the training that we're talking about, you know, mm -hmm making sure that everyone who's at, who's at, at a source of data uh, at, 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 a, at a point of collecting data understands why it's important to really make sure that we spell everybody's name right, that we record everything um, you know, in the right way uh, and that we don't manipulate anything that's at all. Um, the other thing is that we, so, and then we're also talking about you know, data privacy there are things that we can do to protect people's privacy, people who aren't interested. So the regulation is still a little bit behind. And then we're trying to jump from that to uh, artificial intelligence. I think having that vision, having the vision of AI being integrated into our health systems is a great one because it gives us something to work towards. But we mustn't forget the, the foundation that we need to lay down uh, mm -hmm. in order for, you know, for, it, for us to actually reap the benefits. And, it, it's not something that we should worry about. Oh, we're going to miss the, you know, the boat. Uh, AI is still evolving. And in fact, um, I think if we can get our data act <laughs> uh, um, together, we can benefit from even more advanced um, technologies. Yeah. Yusha, where do you see technology going in the health space um, and in sub-Saharan Africa in the coming years? Huh. It's... <laughs> 
the, you know, one thing, the possibilities are really endless. There is a lot of work that, the, provided we do the groundwork, right? There, there is a, technology is going to thrive as much as we create the environment for it to try, to thrive, right? So we have um, connectivities, it's gotten over the past decade that I've spent working um, all over the continent, connectivity is so much better now. So we've got that right. Um, but then we've got, you know, we still have some power issues with our power that we, we have to address. Um, and then as I, so once, if we can figure out a way to, you know, have, a, to get enough power you know, to, to be able to host some of our own data, to be able to allow our researchers to do their work in, in, with it in the context, I mean, the, the possibilities are really endless. Uh, we see that uh, adopting technology, if it's serving us right, mobile money is one of the, the, the examples that people use everywhere. That it's, I mean, it's everywhere. It was when I first moved, it was just an East Africa thing and then South Af Southern Africa thing. And now even in remote places in Burkina Faso, people are using mobile money. So um, we, we adopt technology uh, we do what we need to do. We as now switching to a, a Congolese or a, a, a citizen of a sub-Saharan African country, uh, we, we adopt what we need to do provided it, it's answering, it's solving a problem for us. And I think that's what we, we don't wanna forget. In the health sector, um, we, we, a lot of what's happening now, it's for research purposes, right? So it's the researchers who need to answer a question and then they, then they, they, they roll out a technology and we're um, much of the patients are sort of passive um, contributors to this space. If we really want people to adopt technology and become active um, users of it, it, ha we have to, it has to be something that solves our problem. In order for us to do that, we have to understand what, what's, what matters to our population. Uh, what, you know, something like malaria, I mean, I would, I, I would think that if we're going to think, okay, where do we, what do we solve? Malaria, everyone all over Africa uh, deals with this. And it's something that, you know, how can we get technology to help us better manage something like that? So, so these are, I think, understanding what matters to people um, and, and figuring out how to give them the technology that they can use to address those problems would, would um, make it so that we really realize the full potential of technology more so than continuing this pattern of researchers outside or you know in the capital or wherever deciding that this is the, the problem and this is the solution and then trying to push that on on the population so are you concerned about some of the potentially negative aspects of technology in health i'm thinking of data privacy i'm thinking of ethical use of technology do those things concern you or do you think that there is sufficient awareness of it Oh, they're definitely a concern. And I, nothing I've seen so far tells me that there's sufficient awareness of it. And even more, more so, um, it might sound slightly accusatory. Um, there isn't, there, there's little oversight with the technology that currently exists. Again, there are countries that, that have taken um, care to put in place policies and regulation. But when I think about, you know, the issue of privacy, what does it matter? I mean, what, what, what does it actually mean? To me, privacy doesn't just mean that, or, or, you know, that someone else would take care of how they use my data, but it's also having 
you know, protections in place so that I can do something about it if someone misuses my data. And, and so that goes into the regulatory environment. Uh, what we still have is that our regulators, um, whether it's in health, um, ministers of technologies or information are a little bit more advanced, but they're not taking care of, you know, people's health per se. So we can't just leave it to them. But we, we, we don't have sufficient um, regulations in place to be able to address um, the privacy issues. And I think the, the wider public um, with, you know, recent things like the US election, what's come, what's come out of, about so, social media since then have certainly opened up the eyes of, especially the youth when it comes mm -hmm. to um, how we use our, our data. But I'm not so sure that that's yet linked to, um, you know, if they're thinking about it more so than what they're doing in social media and or if they're also making the connection that these types of issues where your information can be used in any way um, about when you know what when they go to their doctors I think we're so used to um, the the paper you know we're used to uh, having our records be on paper and it's filed and it's in, in a place and I think even when we're thinking about digital health our, our mentality is still one that um, of, of that, you know, that same system. Like if I go to my doctor and I say this and this, it's it's filed and stored in a place that no one else can access it. But we have cybersecurity issues or we just have, you know, hmm. some discussions of people deciding, well, if it's for their own good, then we can do this and this and this. So, you know, so if we're, as long as there isn't, it, it's, we need to be sort of forward thinking about this, right? Even if we're not, we, we don't have anything yet, or we're not hosting our own data nationally yet. Well, what what would we want to have in place when we do when we start um, hosting our own data? Uh, and as we know, regulations take a long time. They they move a lot slower than technology. So this is one of the reasons why they need to work ahead. Now I say this. I should also mention countries uh, with the help of. Uh, uh, World Health Organizations and other partners have worked on digital health strategies, and so they, the the ministries of health, at least, and have have a vision about health and privacy um, is something that comes in there. But as we know, ministries of health alone won't be able to um, solve the the regulation issue. It's something that we as citizens, as citizens, policymakers beyond the health sector need to be thinking about because it's going to impact and it already is impacting all of us. Mm. On that call to action, I think we'll end today's session. Um, and thank you very much, Jujette, um, for joining us for, for what was a really eye-opening discussion, I think, on, on, on technology and health. Um, and so much broader than simply telemedicine, right? I mean, there's just so much we can be doing it. Um, we hope that you, the listener, really enjoyed listening to the intersection of health in Africa and technology. And as always, thank you very much for listening to Change Voices. Remember to rate the podcast on your on your platform that you're listening on and to share it with other leaders across the continent. Join us next time as we continue to explore the technology ecosystem and the leadership challenges and opportunities that these present. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.